0: Mike asked me what, uh, he told me what songs we were doing this morning, asked me what order to do them in, and uh, thought that was a good fit there, but I forgot how the ending of that one gets me every time. So if so I bit shaky here at the beginning, uh, my apologies. Um, let's open up in prayer. God, as we continue this journey that we've started through our statement of faith, um, this document that has been created by uh, members of our church, our conference, our forefathers and mothers, and, uh, and, and those of us who are involved today, uh, and shaped over this time to try and sort of capture what it is that we believe about you and the world that we live in, and our relationship to you and our relationship to others, and our calling as the church. Um, God bless us as we walk through this. Bless us as we enter into your word again to explore these things. Uh, may our hearts be shaped. Uh, may our minds be expanded. May our spirits um, be lifted. Uh, may your Holy Spirit be active as we, as we go through this. Help these things to shape us into uh, people who are disciples of you, Jesus, who are following after your example in all things. Amen. So we are continuing uh, our series on the statement of faith, and and we're to the third Sunday in this, and we are going to be talking about what we believe about creation. And I could be wrong about this, but I wonder if it is true that out of all the pieces of our statement of faith, this may have... Uh, some of the most sort of strongly held opinions and some of the largest variety around those opinions. This is something that many of us have, have thought about, have processed, have come to conclusions on and hold as significant in our faith. Uh, and I know this because I sent out a survey. And I got lots of responses, which I promised that I would share with you uh, today today. Uh, But before I get to the survey, I want to talk a little bit about the Mona Lisa. I know, I'm sorry. So this is uh, the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is probably the most famous painting in the world. It hangs in the Louvre in Paris. It was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, And you may be aware that the Mona Lisa is also the subject of several heated debates and controversies. People have wondered for centuries, ever since this painting was painted, about who the Mona Lisa is. And there are many theories out there. Most art critics and historians would believe that very likely it's Lisa Gherardini del Giacondo, a wife of a silk merchant from Florentine, but others have speculated That it could be da Vinci's mother, it could be some other noble woman, it could be a sneaky self-portrait, that's a popular theory. It could be his assistant that sat for the painting, or even that there is no reference for it. It's just his painting of an ideal woman. There are also theories that Leonardo da Vinci has hidden secret messages in the painting. People think that they have found letters painted hidden in Mona Lisa's eyes that give special information or unlock something i don't know if any of you read the book or saw the movie the da vinci code but that was inspired in part by some of these theories or debates there's discussion around the smile that she has what could it mean what was it meant to express there's a bridge on the right side of the painting maybe you can see it in the lower uh, right hand corner there there's a debate about that bridge What is that bridge? Where did it come from? What bridge did he reference when he was doing that? Was that bridge something that exists today? Was it something that was around then and has since been destroyed? There's debate about it. There's a medical community debate about the Mona Lisa. There are people that wonder about what sort of diagnoses they can learn about her from this painting. Did she have high cholesterol? There's scientists who believe that by looking at this painting, we can tell she had high cholesterol. She probably ground her teeth. There are things that people debate about this painting, there's lots of different things, uh, lots of different controversies, lots of different conversations around the Mona Lisa. I'm going to leave that there. I wanted to just sort of set that up, I promise we'll get back to it later, but I wanted to talk a bit about the Mona Lisa to begin, back to the survey we received well over 50 responses, which I thought was pretty good. And the survey had two questions. And the first was a question around your beliefs about creation, the creation stories that we find in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. So I provided three options there where I tried to capture kind of what I thought might be the general buckets that people could fall into. And some of you noticed in your responses that your views didn't perfectly line up with one or the other of the answers. There's a lot of nuance and a lot of variety in how we approach this, and so uh, that makes sense. I know that for some of you, you will look at this, and that there wasn't anything that perfectly matched, but, but you will have gone and kind of gone, this sort of fits the closest to what I believe. Uh, interestingly, I did have an option in the survey for you to kind of step away from the debate and say, I don't know. I actually don't know what I believe about this, and not a single person who answered the survey chose that option. So I imagine some of you who didn't do the survey chose that option. But anybody who did the survey, uh, they did not say, I don't know what I think about this. Everyone chose an answer. And so here are the three options that I gave. Option number one was, I believe the world was created in six literal days. The Garden of Eden is a literal place. And at the age of the earth is probably... 10,000 years or less. So that would be uh, the view of creation that's typically referred to as young earth creation. Option two, I believe that God created the world, but the days may have been longer ages. There's a verse in Second Peter that talks about a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so you go, God's outside of time. He created, but potentially... A day was not a literal 24-hour day. There may have been more time taken here to do this. And option three uh, was that I believe the creation story, including the garden, teaches us important spiritual truths, but may not have been a literal place that literally existed as we see it there. God is creator, but aspects of the Big Bang, aspects of the theory of evolution give us a good picture, uh, or the best picture that we have right now anyways, into how creation probably happened. So here are the results. 37% of you, just over one-third, I guess that's about three-eighths of you, went with option number one, a literal young earth creation. The world is created in six literal days. 33% of you, just about exactly one-third, went with the second option. Garden of Eden was literal. Days may have been longer ages. 23% of you, right around a quarter of you who answered the survey, went with that last option. These chapters are trying to teach us spiritual truth. God created everything we see, but science gives us a good picture of the mechanics of creation, how things came into being. Uh, I was surprised by how even it was between the categories, and practically what it means, I won't ask you to actually do this, but if you were to sit in your pew and look to your left, and look to your right, odds are you think about this differently. You come at this from a different angle. You process this uh, in a different way. Which brings me to the second question in this survey, which was how important is it to have a clear and decisive view on the scientific and historical aspects of creation? Uh, One response I got afterwards mentioned a distinction that maybe I should have made a bit clearer here. They said, it doesn't matter much to me how God created the world, but it matters incredibly much that God created the world. And that was my intention here. I wasn't trying to call into question God's hand in creation, uh, but but to talk about how important is it that we have a clear sense of what we believe about what happened, how it went. So there was a slider from zero to 100 that you could drag. Uh, Zero being, I don't think it's important at all. 100 being, this is of the very highest importance. It's essential for us to figure out. And this was fascinating to me. We had answers all over the map, from zero to 100. We had 80s and 60s and 40s and everything in between. But when you added up every single answer that was given, the average was—and I promise that this is true—exactly 50%. When you went through every single answer and averaged them out, that is where we ended up. So again, a wide variety of feelings here. I'm sorry, Dave. It's just too controversial you're good. (laughs) So it's fascinating to me uh, to look into this, and it's maybe one of the reasons why I had a little bit of, uh, not fear necessarily, not uncertainty, but I was aware that people would be listening carefully to a sermon like this, because there is huge variety in opinion about how creation happened, and there's also a huge variety in opinion around how important our understanding of creation is, and so it feels likely that some of you are going to walk out of this sermon going, so we're going to miss on that one. You didn't, you didn't quite get it. You didn't hit it quite the way I would have liked you to. It's a tricky topic. Well, let's go to our statement of faith. That's what this series is about. Let's go to our statement of faith to clear this up. What does the EMC statement of faith, what we have adopted as the Pleasant Valley statement of faith, have to say about this? Uh, it goes into a fair bit of detail on many things. It takes a long time to talk about God And the Trinity, there's a lot of detail there. Surely it can bring some clarity to this creation debate. This is what our statement says in its entirety. We believe that God created everything, as revealed in Scripture. The end. It is far and away the shortest section of our statement. And actually, when you go back and look at the original confessions of faith, the creeds or the statements of the early church... The documents that were designed to sort of create guardrails for us on this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means uh, to have faith. These are the lines between sort of orthodox faith um, and and, and kind of getting out there and, and not being a part of the church anymore. Those documents, none that I'm aware of, contain specific details on how creation was accomplished. It's not included in those documents. you look at the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, they don't talk about those things. It's just like uh, the one opinion that commented on the survey, that God created the world is much more important than how God created the world. Sometimes in junior youth, I would get questions around this topic, around creation, and I'd always preface it by saying, I think that the devil gets excited. It is a great victory for him. When Christians, when followers of Jesus, get really bogged down in and frustrated by and confused by and distracted by these things. When we lose focus on Jesus and the call to pick up our crosses and follow him and instead end up in debates about science and nitpicking verses for truth here or there. A few years ago, a creation science group, I don't remember which one, reached out and asked to present in our church on uh, on young earth creation. And it's not the sort of thing that I would typically jump at, but I wanted to give them a fair chance. And so I said, can you direct me to your material? Can I, can I get a sense of what it is that you would be presenting? Uh, and it turns out that the whole presentation was available on YouTube already as a video. Uh, so I went and I watched it, and I turned it off uh, after five minutes, and I said, I don't think we're a good fit uh, for your group to come through. Uh, sometimes I have problems with groups like this, because they tend to have a bit of a posture in the way they present. They have a bit of condescension or pride, or or just a general lack of humility or curiosity that can sometimes bother me. But that wasn't the main issue here. Uh, Rather, it was something he said. Early in the presentation, he said, as he was kind of introducing things, that literal six-day creation, a young earth understanding of creation, was the cornerstone of our faith. It was the most important thing. And if we don't believe in young earth creation then we may as well throw the rest of the Bible out. Nothing else matters if this isn't true. Maybe you're like me, and when that word cornerstone came up, red flags started popping up all over the place because the Bible speaks very clearly about what the cornerstone of our faith is. It's not creation science. The cornerstone of our faith is Jesus And so I have space for the argument that this is an important thing to get the details right on, to land at the right spot on. I have a personal opinion about this. I did the survey, and and I would welcome, if you want to talk to me about this, if you want to drop by the office sometime or take me out for coffee and ask me about my opinion on creation and how I think about reading these verses and kind of what answer I checked on this survey, I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. We can chat about it. But I do want to, And I do want to make it clear uh, that creation, our thinking about creation, uh, is an important part of what we believe. Genesis 1 and 2 are incredibly important pieces of scripture for us, which do a lot to shape how we think about the world, ourselves, our relationship with God. But I have no space, and neither should you, for any argument that an understanding of the practical method or the details around creation has the same level of significance to us as our faith In Jesus. It's simply on a different level. It has to be. Okay. I do actually want to talk directly about some of the scripture in Genesis 1. This is an incredibly familiar passage to us. So I'll invite you to turn there. Uh, We're going to go through pieces of it. Um, But because it's so familiar, I'm going to talk about some of the big structural things in the passage more than going through it verse by verse. But we'll start at Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Let's stop for just a moment there. This is as good a place as any to pause. This passage, this book, was written thousands of years ago to a different culture, in a different language, in a different part of the world, with a different way of understanding the world. It's easy to forget how modern our way of thinking is compared to those who are hearing these words for the first time. For example, ancient Israelites would have had no concept of a globe, would not have been in their frame of reference, In fact, when you think about the Earth, if I say the word Earth, for all of us, I think there is a picture that pops into our head of a spinning sphere of blue and green. That's kind of the idea that we get when we hear the word Earth. Well, the first ever picture that humans got of the Earth, a black and white grainy picture of a part of it, the first picture we have from space was taken about 70 years ago. That's how long that picture of earth as a globe has been around, a few generations. And so we need to understand that when we read these verses, we are going back in time and try to get our heads a little bit into the space of the people who this was originally written for. Our view of the world is completely different than it was for ancient Israel. There's an important general principle for scripture reading. Uh, Just a general statement that is, I think, a good statement to think about when we're reading the Bible. Don't try to make the Bible answer questions that it wasn't asking. If we selfishly approach Scripture with a list of free-formed questions that a pastor must answer for us or speak to, we can very often end up twisting it to say something it was never designed to say in the first place. The Bible college word for that is eisegesis, literally putting yourself in into the text. And so we need to take a step back from what we wish this would say, or what we wish the priorities of the author were, and simply ask the question, what's important to Moses here, to the Holy Spirit as it writes through Moses? What is the author trying to communicate? What is he trying to teach the people of Israel about creation and God and the beginning of all things? And it seems to me that Moses was less concerned with writing a scientific breakdown of creation and more concerned with answering the big questions that we all seek to answer. In the beginning, he answers these questions. Where are we? Who are we? What's our purpose? What is wrong? What's the solution? These sorts of questions. And Genesis 1-3 does a masterful job of answering those questions. Uh, So what I want to do, in the little bit of time that we have left is take a look at Genesis 1. And I know that it's a familiar passage. I'll kind of go through it in big picture and look at three things that we do know. There's a lot that can confuse us about this. There's a lot that can be uncertain. And I want to kind of lock in on the things that we do know in this passage that we can lean on. Truths that Moses was trying to communicate, inspired by the Holy Spirit, when he wrote these words. So the first thing that we do know is that God created In the beginning, God. God existed before the beginning. He is outside and above creation. He existed, and other verses in the Bible make this clear, in his triune form Father, Son, and Spirit together, all in the beginning. And they, He created the heavens and the earth. And remember, when Moses and the Israelites are thinking about earth, they aren't thinking about earth. They're thinking about the earth, the heavens, And the earth, in the beginning, out of nothing, we start with a formless and empty earth. There's a translation I read that said that the earth was wild and waste, like an uninhabitable, chaotic, barren desert. And then we read that darkness was over the surface of the deep, a dark ocean. And oceans in Scripture represent chaos and danger and wildness. So, is it a desert? Is it an ocean? Immediately we aren't necessarily getting the questions answered that we want answered if we try to put this together logically. But whether we're an Israelite thousands of years ago or sitting here today, the picture we're supposed to get in our heads is of something unstructured, unordered, inhospitable. It doesn't sound like a pleasant place. It doesn't sound like a place for life, like a place where we would want to be. But as we read, we see that this isn't only a barren wasteland. God is there, hovering over the surface of the deep, and he is just getting started. The second thing that we know is creation is purposeful. It's purposeful. It is ordered. We jump immediately into this incredible song of creation with repeated stanzas and rhythms. Six days of creation where God doesn't wrestle things like other beings into creation. Other creation myths have gods kind of fighting the world into creation, kind of struggling, using all of their power to get this thing going. And here we have a god who doesn't have to lift a finger. He simply speaks. His power is so great that by his word, the universe, the cosmos, springs into life and action. And if you lay out the six days of creation, there's a very clear pattern here. There's no accident in how these days are laid out. First, the light and the dark are separated into their proper spheres. Then the waters of the deep and the waters of the sky are separated on the second day into their proper spheres. Then the land is tamed and vegetation grows. Life comes up from the land. Out of the wild and waste, we have a garden. We have trees and plants. So in those three days, we have the establishment of the big categories, day and night, sky and and sea, Uh, and land, creating the structure of the universe as we know it. And then God begins to fill those structures with life. On day four, God places the celestial bodies into the sky. He fills the day and night with sun and moon and stars. And on day five, he fills the waters below with fish, with sea life. And he fills the waters above the rain waters with birds. And then, on day six, he creates land animals to move among the land, And later in that day, he creates man. He says, let us make man in our own image to rule over fish and birds and livestock and all of these creatures I've created. There is a care and an intention and a purpose behind this. The order of creation is not random. It is purposeful. Other creation myths, other stories of creation involve flood and fires and earthquakes and fighting, struggling gods and chaos and disorder and danger. Uh, The secular way of looking at the world is random and chaotic and marked by death and pain and chance. The gods of the people around Israel were bloodthirsty. They didn't care much for humans or creation. Humans and creation were lesser things. Genesis speaks directly against that view of the world. This isn't random, it's not chance. It's not disordered. God created with care and with intention and with structure and with beauty. This was all a part of a clear plan. And in fact, it brings us to our third point. Creation is good. Another part of the structure we see is the repetition. There's poetry in this chapter that gets repeated over and over again. God speaks, a category of creation comes into being, and at the end, God observes it, And he declares it good. He makes day and night, it's good. He separates the waters, it's good. He brings life to the land, it's good. Sun, stars and moon, good. Fish and birds, good, over and over again. And this again was in contrast to a worldview around them that creation is out to get us. Creation can't be trusted. It's dangerous and bad and must be tamed. No, God created this by his voice and it is good. And there was evening and morning. And we move on to the next day. Here again, the world looks at creation. Many other religions, other myths look at creation as dangerous, wild, untamable, difficult even for the gods themselves. The secular view of the world is that it is at best neutral. There's no love behind creation. There's no heart behind it. It's survival of the fittest. A bunch of cells happening to crash together in the right combination to be an apple or an antelope or your auntie. It's all just protons and neutrons and stardust, and nothing has any deeper meaning except what we as humanity might choose to give it. It's all anarchy. Here, creation is good. That word good, the Hebrew word tov, is that which is beautiful and healthy, that which properly fills the purpose it was made for, that which is at home, which is where it belongs. Genesis 1 is a statement against all those other worldviews. The world is not random chaos. Creation is not evil. Life isn't random. Creation, as God intended it, is tough. It is good. When God arrives at day six, he creates humankind, male and female, and blesses them as the rulers of the world he created. And God sees it and declares it very tough, very good. And that's another important lesson that we learn, one that will be taught again and again throughout Scripture. Over and above other created things, humankind stands in special relationship with God, with special responsibility, with special connection, with special purpose. We learn without a doubt from the creation story that there is something unique and significant, something very good about we who are created in God's image. And we'll get into that next week as we look at the dignity of the human race. As we close, though, I want to go back to the Mona Lisa for a moment. I talked at the beginning about the controversies around this painting. And you and I, all of us, we could charter a plane, a couple of planes maybe. We could fly to Paris and we could go to the Louvre and we could elbow our way through those crowds and we could go stand in front of that painting. And we could talk about it. We could talk about how da Vinci made use of light And the composition and how the portrait is positioned in comparison to the background and the technique with his brush strokes and how the curves of the hair are reflected in the mountains and how the smile looks so different depending what angle you view it from. And that would be a fascinating conversation. But what would have happened in the midst of all that debate and all that information is that we would have completely missed the entire purpose of the existence of the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa isn't special because of the controversies or the background or the techniques used or the kind of paint that's used. The Mona Lisa is special because for hundreds of years, people have come to look at it and they have been captured and taken in by the power and the beauty of the grand work of a master. They have understood the artistry and the beauty and the story and the wonder of that painting from the fine details to the big picture when we approach the creation story in genesis if we approach it as a science textbook or a list of modern questions to be answered or debated i'm going to argue that we have missed the point of this powerful and beautiful work of art the creation story in genesis does not invite us or want us to start puzzling about how could there have been day or night before there was a sun or moon in the sky? Or does the separation of waters mean there was a water sphere above the atmosphere and a water sphere below the atmosphere? Or did all of this happen in six literal days or some other period of time? That's, that's a modern way of approaching this text. It's not a cop-out. It's not ignoring the tough questions. I have a lot of space for the fact that these chapters can teach us important historical and scientific truth. But very simply, those questions are not the questions that Moses and the Israelites had in their minds when Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these verses. The book of Genesis invites us to step into a work of art from the original artist, the original creator himself, who, with all three members of the Trinity, in unity and creativity and joy and love, made this, made all of this. It dares us to look around at the world that has been created and see everything around us on the land or in the sea or in the sky or in the heavens as intentional and purposeful and infused with Tav, with the goodness of God. And it shows us that God created all this not just for himself but for us. Humans who are made in his image, many creators in intimate relationship with their father, it tells the story of a creator God who is not some distant, unknowable entity, but who wants to be with us, who wants to walk with us in the cool of the garden. And I say, what truth could be higher than that? Amen? Amen.